Success Stories is presented by TheConstantInvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every week my writing and podcasts put the financial world in context with a focus on the issues that matter. As a member of The Constant Investor, you can also access our exclusive Facebook group where I'll answer your questions directly. Join us today. It's just a dollar for the first month. Now here's Catherine Robson with a success story. Breakups can be ugly, but if executed brilliantly, they can shake up an entire industry. NAB's award-winning breakup campaign, led by former head of retail Lisa Gray, did just that. Launched on Valentine's Day 2011, it was a move so bold it alienated some of her professional peers. But her commitment to give more and take less for NAB customers produced incredible results and took NAB from last to first place in customer satisfaction surveys. Now CEO of the $47 billion Victorian Funds Management Corporation, Lisa's known for her ability to transform companies and lead complex cultural change. Her willingness to take risks, back herself, and say yes to opportunities have taken her from town planning to the pinnacle of Australian finance. My father was an architect, so I always had an interest in urban form. And then in year 12, uh, I did geography and I really enjoyed that. And so it just gave me that interest around urban uh, elements. And so town planning seemed to be the thing to do. So I went and did the town planning course and I loved that. And obviously did well at it because you got first class honours. If you find what you're passionate about, you naturally can do well, I think. Uh, And so, but partway through the course... I did a subject called organisations, which was quite innovative uh, at that time in that kind of course. It was all about people, psychology, groups, teams, etc. And I realised I was really interested in that. And that sort of led me to a path of realising I wanted to get into management uh, and leadership. And so I then picked subjects to enable me to come out with a town planning degree, but a a broad degree. And did you work in town planning at all or you went straight into management roles? I spent one summer vacation through the course working at a local council, my local council, I won't name it, and the first week I was there, the the guys who were there full time, they said to me, look, at morning tea time, and they had morning tea, I'd run out of work to do. And they said, you're just working too fast and do hard, stop doing that. And I realised through that experience in the course that town planners tended to be the meat in the sandwich uh, between government and authorities and developers. And I didn't want to be the meat in the sandwich. I wanted to be part of leading something. So... I then decided, all right, well, I'll come out as a graduate and I'll find an organisation that has a graduate program, yeah. And was that AXA that you started with? Yes, it was. I wrote lots of letters and people didn't get how you could be a town planner and then want to do something else. Uh, So I eventually worked my way through to two financial services organisations, AXA being one, and ANZ was the other. They both offered me jobs. And did you know that it was financial services that you wanted to get into or was it a broad sweep that financial services were the ones that responded? More the latter, actually, yeah. I knew probably things, leading people, services was a good way to transfer from where I was. And then I realised I need to find a graduate program because they were the ones most open to people with different skills uh, sets. And then it just happened to be, in fact, quite frankly, it was National Mutual at the time. I'd never heard of them. And it seems to me that it's smart organisations that hire on sort of natural aptitude, natural work ethic 
those sort of internal things you can't teach and accept that you can teach all the rest of the skills. Has that been part of your philosophy in hiring people over time? Definitely. And I certainly found that when I got to arrived at AXA because I knew how to research, I knew how to write reports, etc. And and they were skills that they needed. So you know, I will always look to a mixture of skills, the right sort of aptitude, someone who has the values that are going to fit with the culture as well. So after you had been at AXA for a reasonable period of time, you were offered the opportunity to really create a startup. Um, and we all think of startups as sort of in someone's garage with a new technology. But this was an interesting startup because it was two big organisations coming together to create something new. So how did the opportunity come about and what was the experience like? When I was at AXA, I tried many things. Uh, and so I you know, started off in a processor engineering role, then went into marketing and product development, uh, moved around, did operations and technology and so forth, always you know, trying to broaden out and build, broaden my skills base. And I got to a stage, I was on the executive, the Australia New Zealand executive team, and I thought, I think I've done all I'm going to do here and I was ready to run something myself. And at that time, MLC and AXA were looking to merge. That was the first time they looked to merge and both of those times it never happened. And the op- they were looking for a CEO for Plum and it was, a, it was a joint venture between MLC and Vanguard, the US fund manager. It was highly secretive. Uh, and so I had a look at it and I thought, this looks like this will be something I'd like to really do. And did they find you or did you seek them out? How did the opportunity emerge? So MLC and... AXA were looking to merge and so I was part of that senior team of the two organisations and Peter Scott, who was actually the head of MLC at that time, along with David Clark, they quietly approached me and said, what about looking at doing something like this? Uh, And so we had some conversations and that's how it happened, yeah. And what was that like, creating something new when you had two big corporates looking over your shoulders? Well, I had two first of all, get used to not having all those resources. Uh, and that was quite different as well. I first of all tried to really get a sense of the two different cultures and what they were both wanting to do. And what was really interesting was that JV came about because both Vanguard and MLC had known each other for a very long time. Vanguard was one of the managers of MLC's multi-manager approach, which was very innovative at the time. And what brought them together was their long-term relationship plus their shared values. And so that at one level made it a little easier because I knew at the core there was consistency. Uh, But then when you have a board uh, of two joint venture partners, one of the things I made sure I did was that I was also on the board because that was important to me to be around that table, uh, being able to do that. So it's important to just be very transparent in those situations and check in with people, not to ask for permission so much, but just to check everyone's still on the same page around things. And I know for you, culture is one of those really critical um, enablers of business success. Uh, What were some of the mechanisms that you used to create a culture in a new organisation? I was technically the first employee, um, and so I had the opportunity to really have a hand in shaping the culture and ensuring people would fit because a small place if you don't fit it doesn't work out for anyone so I was involved 
in every recruitment decision for probably the first 50 people. So they go through the normal, you know, first stage, et cetera, but I would be the final person to interview with them. So then I could have that sense of a thread. And then once you start to build that, then you can devolve that too because people have a sense. And we did a range of different things in those early days, such as every week we would have a stand-up meeting. So beginning of the week... Everyone would get together in the boardroom and that gradually became more crowded and we would stand up. The point was it was pacey and I would kick off with various things, but anyone could update. So there was a sense of keeping people informed the whole time. And I think for me, whether it's 10 people or 10,000, and I've done both of those ends of the spectrum, strategic alignment is a really important task of the leaders of the business. Yeah. You made the switch from Plum to then work for NAB. Was that difficult to make that choice to move from being the, the CEO, the, the owner really of, of something that you had created to then working for something much larger? Well, I got approached for that role or very, you know, discreetly a couple of times and I kept saying, no, no, I'm, no, no, I'm fine, I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I, it was coming towards the end of being four years at Plum and I'd had one child at the beginning of Plum and uh, one child at the end, in the end. Uh, and what happened was I started to realise I was ready for the complexity and messiness of a large organisation again uh, and the, you know, the, the many dimensions uh, of that. So I then thought, oh, actually, maybe it's time for me uh, to go back into a larger organisation and then so just had some conversations uh, with people around that and the opportunity came up. But I did have to transition, having spent four years at a smaller place. Uh, even though I knew quite a lot of the people, I did need to transition back into the big organisation and being one of the silos. And how did you do that? Did you just sort of mentally take time to adjust or did you embrace external courses and study? I first of all realised that part of the ML, so MLC's executive team was important to know the people and my peers on that team. So before I even started, I did spend time, spending time with each of them and quite frankly, particularly the ones who I knew were more influential in that team. Uh, so I got to know them pretty quickly and tried to get a sense of the journey that they had been on as well. So that was probably one of the early things I did. And then understand where this organisation, it was the insurance uh, business at the time, it had had a tough journey actually. And so trying to, it was clear to me I needed to try and help create a vision and a picture of the future for them and to give, they were feeling very much like the second class citizens. So how do you give people, help them find their pride and their energy and their ambition again? And I know one of the things that that you're known for is your ability to transform culture um, and also to encourage organisations, big organisations, to take bold initiatives. Can you give a couple of examples of both of those? Mm. One of the – within insurance, for example, it was it was seen as the, the second-class citizen, the poor cousin, and so one of the things we needed to do early on was to find, well, what does, let's be in charge of the future and architect our own agenda as opposed to just responding to everyone else. And they often bemoaned they couldn't get any investment money. Uh, so and that's from the bank in terms of as the central administrators of the bank's capital are deciding where they'll invest within the different businesses, is that...? Correct, yes. So they needed to invest maybe in some new products or some marketing or technologies, all of those things, but unless you can get the investment, the capital allocation to do that, it's hard. So 
we needed to create a narrative and a story about where we were taking this and get people excited and then get this peer group, that MLC executive team, first of all, to be on board that they needed to invest here. So we started to do that and create a picture of where might the insurance business go? And then I started to shift the team too and brought on board people, you know, people like Vicky Carter, who, uh, you know, has gone on to do amazing things uh, as well, who would have a passion, who were well respected by other people across MLC. And so brought some new thinking and some new uh, blood and some new ambition and different challenge into the organisation. And then probably another thing we did as part of this is, you know, it was several thousand people. So how do you get that energy and momentum going? And so we started uh, little road shows, some people call them town halls, etc. But we did them in a very different way, whereby we had lots of people involved in them. There was a lot of humour and energy, but we still got the messages across. And so they became a bit a key part of the culture. You went on from insurance to one of the biggest jobs um, in banking, really, being head of the the retail um, business, which um, is large by you know any measure, but certainly in terms of the number of customers that you touch and the number of interactions that you're having and the number of things that can go wrong. Uh, what was that role like and what were some of the things that, that you were most proud of during your time in that role? People often ask me, what's the best job you've had? And at some point, to me, it's the current job I have because you're always wanting to do something new. Uh, but, you know, that role will always have a place in my heart, absolutely. And, you know, the whole notion of fair value, uh, which was the strategy, and one of the key things is that you? I always start with strategy. Uh, and while many people in the first time, you know, Australians saw what was going on there, which was with the breakup campaign, that was two years into the strategy. And I think, you know, you start with the strategy first. And it was always about a fair exchange of value between the organisation, its shareholders and its customers as well. And we really kicked that off off the back of the GFC where I think quite, you know, there hadn't been a fair exchange of value and it got out of kilter globally. That was a wonderful thing for us to do. It took a lot of courage. We were really backed by Cameron Klein, who was the group CEO at NAB at the time, who was really trying to realise you couldn't keep doing what you'd been doing and expect a different outcome. So I was working at the NAB and you were kind enough to give me some mentoring. There's a couple of pieces of advice that have been really impactful for me. And so one of the things at the time I was looking for was help on being more decisive. What's your view on um, how important being decisive is and, and what some of the tools can be? I think there's decisiveness in a business context and also in a personal context. Uh, and from a business perspective, at the end of the day, one of my philosophies is it's better to frame it as thinking of choices not so much decisions. People can get a little white line fever around making a decision. They feel they're then locked into it. Whereas I think if you think about things as making a choice, when we make a choice, uh, we make a choice based on the best data we have at that point in time. Um, we can always make a new choice down the track if new data comes along or the context changes and anyone is qualified to make a choice as long as they've got the data and they've got strategic context. And for me, devolving decision-making is really important because I think the best decisions are made closest to where they're being implemented. So I try and help people think about, and I do myself about, making choices uh, because I think it frees you up, uh, but you're still making decisions ultimately. You've also done some 
um, pretty intensive formal study as well to complement your, your initial undergraduate studies. Um, for you, how important has the formal theory and study been as, as compared to the on-the-job learnings? I, I found it very uh, important because I like the idea of having some frameworks and constructs that I can then apply in a whole variety of different situations. And I think formal training and development helps you with that. You have to then apply them, you have to learn and adapt them. And over time, I've built my own theories and, and approaches as well. But I think you, that intellectual stimulation and challenge and rigour serves you well. Uh, but you have to want to do it for the right reasons. Uh, and it has to be at the right time in your career as well. So what at what points did you do your studies and what did you do? I did, so after a few years uh, working full-time, I did a graduate diploma in management at RMIT and a mentor of mine suggested doing that and that was a, a very much a group learning, self-directed learning call, formal course, but self-directed. And so I met a variety of very different people who you don't typically meet. But then I started... Uh, to get a little frustrated and wanted to, uh, you know, further progress. And the same mentor suggested doing an MBA. So I went and did an MBA in part at Melbourne University and part at Columbia University in New York. And that was great because it really helped frame a range of disciplines that I didn't have, such as business finance and things like that. So I knew enough, enough to be dangerous, really. Uh, it's all about asking questions when you're in leadership roles. You don't have to know everything. And that is an important transition point for people, not to have to feel they're the expert. Uh, so that was really important. And then later on, I did an advanced management program at INSEAD, which helped open up the global lens on things. Yeah. So you're back running your own show, so that you're, you're the CEO of the Victorian Funds Management Corporation. What does that role involve? Our whole purpose as VFMC is really improving uh, the future prosperity of Victoria and the Victorians, uh, the people of Victoria as well. So we have, we're ultimately the fund manager for the state of Victoria. We have about 25 clients, all of whom are public authorities, such as TAC, WorkSafe, uh, EWS, uh, Super. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're organisations, some health organisations, arts uh, organisations as well. So they're doing great work for Victoria. Uh, and ultimately, we're helping the Victorians behind that who might have had an unfortunate accident, who we help them in their retirement, etc. So it's the people are very passionate about what we do and why we do that. And what are your key priorities in the role? So you've been in the role for eight months. What are the things that you'd really like to target? Well, it's been a successful organisation. And so that's a bit different for me, actually coming in uh, with something that is is going well. There's always more to do. And one of the things that appeal to me about the role, not only being able to you know, give back and be part of Victoria is also we are in unprecedented uh, global markets. Uh, they're very uncertain. They're volatile. The typical relationships you have between different types of securities has gone out the window now. So it's a very challenging environment and context. So that gives extra challenge. And we've just uh, finished a strategy refresh. We're now shaping that into our strategic plan. And, you know, a lot of what is coming through there is about being very focused about our strategic agenda, uh, 
building resilience in investment performance uh, and doing different things to make sure we're resilient in these quite difficult times. Oh, that's oh well, that's a proprietary secret. That's right. That's to come. Watch this space. Uh, And then also the third thing we're looking to do out of that strategy refresh is really develop further key enabling capabilities, particularly digital and technology and data and analytics. And I think that's the key. With investments and with any decision-making, really, it's about seeing the patterns that other people don't see, seeing the opportunities that are there or having a conviction around that. The activities, as you say, is a funds management capability, but presumably you partner with various different um, fund management organisations to fulfil part of that strategy. Is that the way it works? We have about 52 billion assets under management. About a third of that we manage in-house. Where we have either scale or skill advantage and capabilities, so particularly around some fixed Australian fixed income and Australian equities. So we do that ourselves and then partner with leading global players. Uh, some are quite niche, uh, some are much broader. So we have that blend and we also then partner with key you know, technology firms around, and custody firms around some of the key administrative and technology services. For individual investors, just like institutions, it's a very complex, challenging environment to be an investor. What would be your advice if you were a younger person thinking about your own personal finances? Well, one of the advantages we have at VFMC is that we are a long-term investor, so we're able to look through the cycles. And I think as an individual ideally you want to set yourself up so you can also be a long-term investor and look through the cycles. Uh, So we have a classic uh, multi-asset diversification and we blend that with other things. But I think it is about being diversified, being clear about what your goals are at the end of the day, as some will be short-term, but hopefully most are for the long-term and then sticking with that plan. You seem to be able to fit a lot into your time um, and you're always enormously generous with your time. What are the key things that you embrace that enable you to you know, have that balance between a fulfilling and demanding work life and, and as you say, fun stuff in your life? I'm quite disciplined uh, and, and I know how to turn off. So one of the advantages I have is I don't have to control everything. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to control everything. I like making the decisions. That's different to controlling everything though. So I'm able to devolve and delegate. Um, I'm comfortable doing that. Now you need to have the right people. They need to understand where things are going. You need to be clear with people what I want to know about and what I'm happy for you to make a decision about without reference. And once you're clear about that, um, then you can do that well. I'm also quite intuitive about when I can sniff something might not be going right or has the potential of not going right. I'll stay a little closer, but that's not about controlling. It's just about being there to support. I can turn off. So when I, if I'm on a weekend or if I go on a holiday, uh, people kind of know, unless someone's we're, we're buying someone or they're buying ours or someone's really sick, d- don't be in touch with me, please. And if you need to, you text me because I'm not going to look at email. So I can turn off. I've learned how to turn off quickly. And is there a technique to that? I think you just have to, well, first of all, know you're not indispensable. Uh, and in fact, it's a gift to others for them to have the opportunity to be responsible to decide uh, things as well. And I believe in creating sustainable organisations. So, and they can only be sustainable if you do devolve uh, as well. And then at home, 
you know, I will, you know, I, I have weekends, you know. Um, again, if something happens, of course, I'm there to, to do things. But I put, I use my diary a lot. So I will put into my diary the things I really need to do and to be at, be it a work thing or, a pers- you know, something with my children. I take my children to school several times uh, every week. I, I drop them off and that's in my diary. So I organise myself to be able to do that. And on the way home, I try and transition through so when I walk through the door I'm present and I'm home yeah I get I actually get changed straight away so I'm in sort of home clothes not in work clothes yeah and you're pretty health focused as well aren't you Mm. what are the what are the practical implementable health things that have worked well for you so I like to run I'm not a really long distance runner I just you know run for me and it's my time I mean so often we don't have time for ourselves so I like to run in the morning get up early in the morning so what time do you get up well usually no later than 5 30 and go for a run and just just it's my time to think through things. Typically, if I've got something big on that day, then I'll rehearse it in my head and run through it and do all scenarios and Q&As and all that sort of thing. It's, it's just my time. And if I've got a problem I'm not sure about, I just put it in there and I usually find by the end of a run I've got a couple of ideas about how to deal with it. And is that every day or...? Most days, yeah. at least five times a week. And yeah. it's sort of half an hour, a bit longer? Yeah, about half an hour. Yeah, Because yeah, okay. I don't have time to do more than that. And it's enough. It's all I need. And what else? Well, then I like, I enjoy time with friends. Uh, so I have time with my, my children. I enjoy time with friends, uh, just doing relaxing things. I like to cook, uh, like to, you know, do various things. So, yeah. Well, it's wonderful to spend time with you. Thank you. You are amazingly generous with your time. So it's wonderful to see you. My pleasure. Great to see you again. Success Stories was presented by theconstantinvestor.com. Our theme music was written and performed by Broke Free.